I'm Laura Marsh, a field biologist and avid conservationist. I know firsthand that finding wildlife work is tough. You're often underpaid, undervalued, and burnt out. These are the stories and interviews from people just like you to help find solutions to the systemic problems in our industry and bring more equity and justice to the rich diversity of life on our planet. We are shaking up the world of conservation through Nova Conversations. Hey guys, so, whoa, I just re-listened to my conversation with Sebastian Moreno, and I just, we just talked nonstop. Maybe it was like the birder connection that we have, we're both big birders, but I think more than that, it was this like love of conservation, love of um, getting, lifting up marginalized groups and redistributing wealth and getting everyone involved. I'm not sure, I'm not sure exactly what it was, but we just, I felt like I could talk to him for hours. Um, the conversation went really good, went back and forth just easily. We talked nonstop. At the very beginning, we jumped right into a lot of the science stuff, which is interesting. But then as we continue on, we got into like this beautiful intersectionality discussion on bringing diverse groups and audiences to conservation, getting rid of the white man model of conservation and kind of shaking up, like he said, shaking the edge of sketch and starting something different so that we can provide more uh, more funds to this truly needed area of science. Uh, we discuss citizen science debate. There's been a lot of talk with changing the term citizen science to community science, and he goes into why Maybe that's not the most helpful approach, um, and a lot of nuance and discussion about that, especially with like social media just wanting to cancel certain terms or certain people or certain words, and it's not helpful. So that was great, and we do talk about like creative solutions to getting funds to conservation, including one I hadn't thought about, which is like creating more of our taxes, putting more a small percentage of our taxes to conservation, which is an awesome idea, but politically can be difficult. And at the very end, he offers his tips for early career conservationists, which are awesome. And everyone needs to listen to us this talk. So if you like what we're doing, please support us on Patreon or just give us a review or a rating or share this episode with a friend, uh, comment on social media, anything that will help spread the word. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Sebastian Moreno. Hey everyone, welcome back to Nova Conversations. I'm here today with Sebastian Moreno. Sebastian is a PhD student at the University of Maryland? Massachusetts. Massachusetts, oh, one of those M states. I knew I was gonna get it wrong. <laughs> that, that's why I'm glad he's here to correct me. <laughs> and what are you studying, Sebastian? Yeah, so I'm studying, uh, so my degree is environmental conservation. Mm -hmm. uh, but my research focus is the intersectionality of ornithology, urban ecology, and social sciences. That's so needed and intense and awesome. And I'm really looking forward to hearing what you've found and what you have to say about that. So tell me a little bit about how your work is structured. Um, what's your dissertation? What's the field work like? And how that's all going so far? Well, I guess I'll start with... I'll work my way backwards. So how it's going, uh, <laughs> it's going how you expect things to go during a pandemic and during now a birdemic, apparently. Yeah. Um, 
yeah, so it's, it's going as good as it's going to get. And I'm just rolling with the punches. I know that I'm not the only one. Everyone is in the same boat with me. So I can't really complain. <sighs> I know. That's crazy. So what, briefly, talk about the, the, all the deaths going on around, well, the D.C. area. But um, I guess it's all in the Northeast. I'm, I, I haven't followed up with this. It has made it up to the Northeast. Uh, the last reporting cases like a few weeks ago were in Pennsylvania. Um, like it had officially made it, but now it's like creeped into the New England area. Uh, so to backtrack, the birdemic is this mysterious bird disease. We don't know like what's really causing it. We know that it's impacting uh, hatchier or like juvenile birds, but specific ones. So it's typically like catbirds, blue jays, robins, um, but obviously it's like sprinkled throughout other species. Mm -hmm. And we're not sure if it's like a community disease that's being passed around through bird feeders and birth bird baths. So a lot of uh, state agencies have been like, just take those down because we don't know what the heck is going on. Just in case. Uh, yeah, just in case. And it has weird symptoms where like the birds lose all like muscle movements and function. Uh, they start over vocalizing, uh, their eyes swell up. There's like discharge coming in their eyes and they just pass away. I actually found a juvenile catbird that had like recently passed away in one of my um, participants' backyards. And I had to report it and they were like, thank you so much. So yeah, if you really want to learn more about it, like do some research, look up your state agencies, wildlife state agency, like what they're doing and what the protocol is, because it's kind of scary. Yeah, as we're recording this right now, it's mid-August 2021. So I hope, I mean, I hope it gets contained, it gets figured out, it doesn't spread anymore. I mean, I'm just kind of like, what is going on in the world? Like I heard about the, the DC deaths and I just kind of thought it was a one-off, like, oh, that's probably some weird thing with the cicadas or, but it's still spreading. Yeah, it's still spreading. Um, it's like I said, it's made its way up to New England. There's some hunches of what it could be. People were saying that it was the cicadas, um, but I feel like people are starting to poke holes in that one. This morning, a participant told me that he has been hearing that it might be the, uh, what do they call it? The lanternflies. Mm. So the lanternflies larva feed on tree of heavens. Mm. And apparently they have like this secondary compound that accumulates within their body. And the larva are like the highest biomass mm -hmm. during like that time of, during this time of the year. And okay. all the parents have like all the adult birds have been grabbing the lanternfly larva and feeding them to their young and then you know by trophic levels that secondary compound got passed into the birds and that's what's going on but there is zero information behind that that's just now we're just theory. like theory from what someone told me and I have not looked into any of that yet uh yeah if you're listening to this and you're unfamiliar with what trophic levels are or bioaccumulation uh, a good example is in tuna where Tuna are at the top of the food chain, so they eat all the smaller fish. And if an or if a compound like mercury um, bioaccumulates, it doesn't dissolve within the. I haven't taught this in a long time, so I'm like trying to remember exactly how to word it. You might, if you want to jump in here, you it can. But doesn't 
it doesn't break down fast enough in the body. So it just stays in there. Mm -hmm. um, and the only reason why I know this is because I just literally listened to a different podcast that we're talking about, like bioaccumulation. So that's the okay. only reason why I know. So it's fresh yeah. on your brain. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> basically the compound, whatever it may be. So like in the case of the tuna, the mercury is not being broken down within the body quick enough. So it just like the word accumulates in there and it just mm -hmm. sticks around. Mm -hmm. And that can have harmful effects on an organism. Yeah. It goes up the food chain up trophic levels. So, oh, wow. Um, yeah, I honestly, I didn't know that the bird deaths were still going on because I heard about it and then I didn't hear about it for a while. So I, um, you're, I'm shocked and <laughs> scared. It's, it's pretty crazy. Um, so yeah, I'm just like really banking on this fall migration to like maybe reduce the numbers. And now since it's not breeding season or it's like we're coming close to an end on breeding season for birds, maybe that might decrease the numbers. Uh, but then like my biggest fear is that all the birds are going to migrate and go south and then they're just going to bring that disease with them and then just spread it to a different region. Holy crap, um, so yeah. it's like a lose-lose. What is happening to our planet, Sebastian? I don't know. The world's on fire. <sighs> literally. And unfortunately we're just, and now I'm kind of getting off track, but we're, we're just at a position where there are so many literal fires to put out uh, on the earth, wildfires, COVID pandemic, um, homelessness, all these diseases that not enough resources from the government or from people through charities go to things like bird conservation or habitat preservation. And yet that is so key and so crucial for the future of our planet to have functioning ecosystems that are whole and provide so many services to us that I just, yeah, we don't see long-term like that. So no. And I don't think like the greater like population right. really understands that. And right. I mean, that just, that kind of goes into like my research a little bit of just the barriers that we're facing and you know if someone doesn't feel like they are connected to the natural world around them then why would they care about the birdemic or the fires that are happening on the other side of the country or the other side of the world or the flooding that's happening who knows where like if they have nothing to connect with it then why bother putting in energy and worrying about that when there's so many other things to worry about, like keeping your lights on, mm -hmm. having jobs, raising your kids, staying alive during this crazy time that we live in. Um, so yeah, yeah, so like that's going back to like the research question. Yep. Uh, my dissertation has three chapters in it. Um, my first chapter, it all falls under the uh, citizen science umbrella, Okay. Uh, which I will explain what citizen science is. Um, in a second. So it's looking at the citizen science umbrella. My first chapter is um, what motivates people to engage in citizen science programs? Mm -hmm. um, and like, what are their attitudes towards collecting data in citizen science programs? Um, from that information, it's kind of give me an understanding on how to go about lowering barriers for underrepresented or historically marginalized groups to engage in these programs. So what we're seeing is that the big citizen science programs kind of like, so you know, you're a birder, I'm a birder, like eBird tend to be skewed towards a certain demographic. Um, that demographic typically being 
white Caucasian, um, retired and making over six figures um, mm -hmm. as an annual income. And mm -hmm. that would make sense because those are the people who have probably time to go out and birding on a Wednesday afternoon right. um, versus the rest of the world is working, um, <laughs> which is all good and well that these people are participating. Um, however, from a scientific perspective, we use this data to inform us of the ecological events occurring. Um, and it's great that we're getting data from certain places, specifically in like more urbanized areas, but if they're not coming from like the entire region, we're not getting a good representation of what's going on. So as scientists, we may be misinterpreting the data that we have, mm -hmm. which could lead to not true conclusions mm -hmm. and could lead to not true management advice or habitat management decisions. Um, so it's like a giant snowball effect. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's, that's my other chapter. And then the last chapter is using citizen scientists to understand data accuracy um, when looking at how the bird community in their backyard is shaped um, when it comes to bird feeding and overwintering birds. Mm. So a lot of papers that I've read, um, they all do a great job engaging people. And they're like, we had this amount of time, we collected this much data and we got this conclusion. But then towards the end of the paper, they have like, well, one caveat is like, can we really trust what these people are collecting? Right. Which yeah. is like the biggest middle finger a scientist can give to their participants. <laughs> I mean, like if I'm asking you to like balance your life with work, children, mm -hmm. whatever other responsibilities you have. And I'm just like, I need you to like, go look at your backyard for as much time as you want and like count the birds. Like you have to carve out time and you might be a more experienced birder. You've made like, I know people that have been birding longer than I've been alive. Mm -hmm. And then I'm just saying, oh, thank you for your hard work. Crumble this piece of paper up because who knows how accurate it is. I'm much like, why even bother engaging people in scientific endeavors? Yeah. Yeah. So that's kind of the scope of what my research is. Now, um, one thing that I do want to clarify is citizen science. So I know mm -hmm. that's been a really hot topic um, <laughs> in certain communities. And I continue to use citizen science um, because like I said earlier, it is an umbrella term. And all citizen science means is a form of engaging the public in scientific research. Right. So that's all it means. Now, there are three types of citizen science programs, and those change by the amount of engagement from the public the scientist gets. So the first one, and this is the lowest level, and quote, quote unquote, the lowest level of engagement, which means that the participants are just collecting data. Okay. Um, so the best example would be eBird, where okay. people go out, collect data, submit it to a database, and that's it. So that's called contributory science, where okay. the participant contributes. That's it. Right. Then we move up another level, and that's called collaborative. So okay. then the participants have 
a little bit more stake in the game. So not only are they helping collect data, but they're also um, able to engage in the uh, data analysis and the result distribution. So they're a little bit more involved in the scientific method. Um, and the last one, and this is where the most confusion comes from, mm -hmm. is community science. Mm -hmm. So community science is where the people dictate the research wow. and they leverage their resources with the scientists to kind of close those gaps and see that their project is completed and they get what they want out of it. So another thing that you can see is not only are we increasing the level of engagement from participants, but we're also refining kind of the geographic region. So in contributory, where it's like, for example, eBird, that's a worldwide thing. That's a worldwide initiative. It doesn't matter where you live, just collect data, put it into the database, it's gonna provide us information. Mm -hmm. If we go all the way to community science, mm -hmm. it's a very specific question. So it's gonna impact the people involved, their neighborhood, their town, their city. It's gonna be very, very specific, region mm -hmm. specific. Um, so yeah, and I know like on the internet, I see a lot of let's change citizen science into community mm -hmm. science. It's a more inclusive, yes, it is more inclusive, but we're using the wrong words. So I totally understand how citizen, that word citizen can be perceived. Um, you know, I know where this is just audio, but for some background, I am a first generation. Mm -hmm. I, my parents are immigrated from Colombia to the United States. Mm -hmm. So I'm a first generation Colombian American. I am a person of color. My family immigrated from Colombia. I know I'm quite familiar with the immigration process, with ICE, with all that nonsense. Mm -hmm. um, so I can tell you, I understand how citizen can be not welcoming. Mm -hmm. um, however, when we look at the rest of the world, the word citizen in the United States has developed this new definition where citizen equals legal status. But if you go anywhere else in the world, Citizen just means someone who lives in the area. Like that's all that means. That's such a good point. I mean, we come from, well, I have this background of American ideology and those viewpoints, and that's the lens through which I'm looking at the world, but that's not the lens through which everyone else is looking at the world. Yeah. And like, I totally understand and, you know, shout out to everyone that's trying to create a more inclusive language. Um, however, we need to make a bit of an effort in taking time to understand the current language before we just make up new words. So mm -hmm. my one big beef with, you know, everyone just being like, let's change it to community science is community science already has a definition of its own. Right. So now we're just like muddying up the waters and making it harder to understand what citizen science is, what community science is. Yes, I have definitely heard those terms interchangeable. Even still, I hear podcasts and I read blogs and they use community and citizen science interchangeably. And they're, they're the same, but not really. It's one of those things where community science is citizen science, but citizen science isn't always community science. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I think that that's, that's another part of my research and trying to use like my platform in science communication mm -hmm. is trying to clear that up. 
And like, I totally understand that people want to change it. Like I'm, that's not my fight. (laughs) My fight is to get people to understand the definitions of Mm -hmm. the words that way as a collective, we can be like, all right, we understand the words. Let's change them for these reasons. And also take it in consideration the rest of the world, because we're not the only country that does citizen science. So yes. like if we decide to change it, are we going to like send out an email to the rest of the world? Be like, hey, guys, uh, the United States has decided to change citizen science to blank. Thank you. Bye. <laughs> to all the ambassadors everywhere. <laughs> yeah. Like there's like I get it. I get wanting to change it and be more inclusive. But like, yes, there's it can't happen overnight. Yes. So I. I applaud your efforts. I, I think you're, and I've heard you on a few different platforms at the um, at conferences and things, and I think you're doing such a good job getting the word you. out. You're not like bashing people who use it, use incorrect terminology. You're gently saying, hey, here's a difference and here's a nuance that you might not have thought about. And I think this world we live in on social media just wants to cancel and bash and shut down without any nuances, without any, well, hey, let's give this a second thought. It's just um, whatever is, I keep using the term exploitative, but it's not, that's not the word I'm looking for. Whatever is like newsworthy and grabs your attention, then that's what gets the most views and likes and things. But in reality, we have to have nuance. We must have that in order to communicate and be a holistic society it's just understanding like taking a second to think about what we're doing like i'm gonna be honest social science is new to me i'm like a classically trained ecologist i started my phd i was interested in social science i was using citizen science and community science interchangeably sure like Mm -hmm. i was one of those people and i i spoke to um someone uh, a faculty member in north carolina who is heavily invested in, in this and does research in this, you know, mm-hmm. shout out to Karen Cooper. And she was like, you need to understand the history behind these words before you move on. And I was like, oh, oh my God, what did I do wrong? Mm-hmm. And yeah, it took me, it took me literally 15 minutes on Google to be like, what are the differences? And like the first paper that popped up was not even a paper. It was a, it was a breakdown of a paper. It was a summary. So it took mm-hmm. me like five minutes to maybe read it. And after that, I was like, oh, that makes sense. (laughs) Okay, I can do this. And actually for the listeners, we'll um, attach some show notes, some links in the show notes. So you can see some resources on your own, including some of Sebastian's work. And he has a really good graphic that does this umbrella term with citizen science being the big umbrella and then the nuances and the different levels underneath that. So we'll attach that as well to the show notes. That's, that's hard work. I mean, I like, like I said, I give you a lot of credit for being an advocate for that. And, um, you know, in a society in a social media world, you're, you're putting yourself out there. And I'm often scared to put myself out there because I fear rejection or I fear people misinterpreting. So I, I shy away, unfortunately, sometimes. And yeah, I've, I've been the same way. Like I hate social media <laughs> for someone who is so active on social media. It's terrifying for me. I'm always like, what do I post? 
there's, you know, people that think about the algorithm and that's just like so much work. Like you need a second one of you uh-huh. to focus on social media, but yeah, sometimes you just gotta hope for the best and just hope that like at least one person is like, Oh, that's interesting. Let me look into it. Or like, yeah. And like, I don't know. I'm a, I'm a big fan of like the ripple effect. Like Mm -hmm. if you can just change one person's opinion, maybe they will change two people's opinion or like, Mm -hmm. you know, it goes on. So Mm -hmm. who knows? I actually have, um, it reminds me of this quote that I have. I don't know if you can, it's, it's backwards, but it says it's about connection, not quota. Yeah. Not about the numbers. It's about forming a connection. Absolutely. That's And like, in a way, that's what, going back to it, that's what citizen science is all about. Yeah. It's that connection. Yeah. It's giving the opportunity for someone that may not have that connection with the natural world to be like, oh, I can do this. And if you make that connection, you get someone to care about what we care about, what we've dedicated our lives mm-hmm. to. They'd be like, oh, wow, like, yeah, it's pretty messed up what's going on. Like, why are we not funding this type of research more often? Why are we not giving to, you know, these forests more? Like, why are we doing it? It's because, like I said earlier, like, if there's not that connection, like, why would they even bother? Like, you can't blame them for not caring. Like, if they don't understand how, like, a piece of trash thrown out their car window is terrible for the environment, it's not, it's not their, it's not their fault. I mean, it is their fault because they threw it out, but it's like, it's our fault as like a collective. Mm-hmm. Like we talk need more about that. Yeah. Cause I, I hear what you're saying. So we have billboards, you know, that say don't litter. And um, we know that type of thing is bad, but we don't have that connection of why we shouldn't litter. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, so I don't know. So like for me and my research, I go into people's backyards and okay. I ban birds. Um, Wait, so you actually go, you, you take all your banding stuff. You set up missing. Yeah. In, in their backyard? In their backyard. So it's like a house call bird banding experience, which Dude, that's awesome. I didn't for know. anyone that's ever bird banded or has like a concept of bird banding, that's really unique. Mm-hmm. Like to have someone show up to your house, set up mist nets, hang out with you, play some bird calls, catch birds in the net and show you up close. Hey, this is what a chickadee looks like. Like, mm-hmm. whole, like I do that. And my favorite houses to go to have to be the houses that have children. Yeah. Because yeah. they become so jacked up. <laughs> like they look forward, like they're, they greet me like at the driveway. They're ready. They're like, they're like there. They come out with me at 7 a.m., which, you know, during summer vacation, 7 a.m. is way too early to be out. Uh-huh. But they're just like out ready. They're like, can I help? How can I help? What can I do? Oh my gosh. Yeah. And then just like having that moment with this kid and like being like, Hey, do you want to hold a house sparrow? Mm -hmm. And like, for all those not familiar, house sparrows are not federally protected. So it's okay for a child to hold this bird. So it's like, do you want to hold a house sparrow? It's like, yeah. It's like, do you want to help me release this chickadee? Just stick out your hand. I'm going to put my hand over your hand. And like on three, we're going to let this bird go together. Like Mm -hmm. their face the way it lights up when they hold the bird mm-hmm. or when they help release a bird or when they're helping me, you know, sometimes I'm just like, uh, I have too much going on. Can you actually write down what I'm saying? Like, can you help me write down my data? Mm-hmm. Like being a part of that process 
really sticks with with an individual. I mean, mm-hmm. like, I'm sure you remember what was that moment that got you involved in this field. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm sure that like sticks with you. And I'm sure there's everyone out there who's in this field who has that one moment where like, this is what I want to do. Mm-hmm. And, you know, at like 10 years old, if you have that experience to have that moment, have that, have that privilege really to ha- make that memory there's a good chance that this person is going to be a scientist or an ornithologist or, you know, be interested in the natural world. And then help to protect it and conserve it. Exactly. That ripple effect like you're talking about. And I've been coming to these people's homes for three years now, three summers. Okay. And I've, I've seen the children growing up. Oh, like now they're eight years old. I was like, I remember when you were five or like, I remember when you were three. And like, I, there's seven-year-olds who come up to me and it's like, oh, that's a Carolina wren. Oh, that's a, that's a house wren. Or that's a chickadee. That's a tufted titmouse. I'm like, I didn't know what a bird, like I knew pigeons. Mm-hmm. And I think that was it when I was eight. Mm-hmm. So like the fact that these kids can identify birds because of people that have been coming to their houses every summer to ban birds. That's, that's really cool. So like they understand uh-huh. they're, they're, they're stakeholders now. They're, yes they they're invested so like they care they know that they're going to care growing up now they're going to care about the birds because of this memory that they have that one brief experience where they let a carolina chickadee go will stick with them forever that's amazing um and so powerful i call birding the gateway drug to conservation oh absolutely (laughs) i like that you're like they're, they're stakeholders, they're investors in the future of our planet, because now they're thinking about where's that bird going to go? How does that bird find food? How does that bird find shelter? That one bird needs all of those things that I need too. And how can I protect that later on in life? And exactly. And if we're not giving, you know, those historically marginalized groups, those underrepresented groups, the opportunity to engage with the natural world, then why would you expect them to care? about exactly. the natural world you only care about something that is relevant to you that's just the simple matter of it that that work must be so incredibly rewarding and powerful do you though face um any um not backlash but have you have you had anyone say well you're banding birds not for science and so therefore it's unethical um luckily i live in an area that's has very similar mindsets to me Mm-hmm. Um, I have never experienced that, um, cause I am banding birds for the sake of science. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, with the benefits that it's also for community engagement. Yes. Um, yeah. and it, and it actually helps when I'm like, yeah, I'm engaging the community, but I'm also doing this for like a bigger scope. Um, so listening to, uh, your first episode, um, we actually worked for the same people. I, so I worked once upon a time for the Smithsonian. This is actually yeah. how I started in citizen science was working for a neighborhood nest watch. Oh, uh, that's great. Yeah. Oh. So that's the whole neighborhood nest watch would has like seven cities that, you know, they, they engage average people, just like can't even say you and me, because we're scientists, like your neighbor who mm-hmm. just, then they're like, yeah, here birds, this mm-hmm. is what we're doing. Cause we're interested in annual survival. Like they hang out in your backyard all summer. They go to Mexico, to Costa Rica, to Panama, to Puerto Rico, all the way down to the southern tip of South America. And then next summer, they come back. Like mind boggling. People, people don't sometimes realize that. And then when they hear, they're like, holy crap, 
this, I don't know, this house friend that I've been feeding all summer packs up its bags and travels thousands of miles. Like if I were to put a backpack on and travel thousands of miles by like walking, I would die. Yeah. But they're flying out here and it's like a teeny tiny little thing. Yeah. It's insane. It's amazing. When you really think about the mechanisms of migration, it's just one of the most mind boggling otherworldly like feats of nature that how do they do it? I know. Yeah. And so teaching, teaching young people, especially historically marginalized groups, that's so valuable, so important. What have, can you tell some more stories about some of the impacts that you've brought to those communities? Um, So I haven't been able to do one of my chapters, the actually lowering the barriers and reaching out to the underrepresented because we've been in a pandemic. Um, Yeah, that's true. Yeah. But before I started my PhD, I was a technician here in this area for the Smithsonian. And the way that we got some of our money to fund this research was a youth access grant. Okay. Um, And basically we, for two weeks, we ran like this, like this class. Um, So Springfield, uh, Massachusetts, I know that there's like a Springfield in every state. (laughs) Springfield, Massachusetts is the third populous city in Massachusetts. Um, Demographics, it's very uh, Latin populated. Um, I think at one point it was close to like 50%, like 40 to 50% of that population is Latin. Um, And there's a lot of public schools there that, you know, kind of fall into that stereotype of predominantly Black, Latin, underserved, not a lot of resources written off as troublemakers, you know, the whole nine. Um, So our goal was to engage these classrooms in these high schools and just get them outside. Mm. And one of my favorite stories, like favorite memories is this one kid, he got off the bus. And the first thing I noticed were his super crispy white Jordans. <laughs> and like I saw them and I admired them. I was like, dude, those are some sick kicks. I love them. He's like, thank you. My mom's got them. And I was like, although man, like drop the ball. Like you can't be wearing those today. He's like, why not? I was like, well, I don't know if anyone told you, but like, we're going to be inside for a little bit, but then we're going to go outside and have just rains. Like there's a good chance, like you're going to get muddy. Mm-hmm. He's like, no, nah, mister, like, I'm not going to do that. Like, I'm just going to hang out. Like, I'm not going to do this. Like, this is all lame. <laughs> and I was like, all right, you know, like that's on you. I'm just like, I just have to get the information out there, engage as many students as I can and have a good time. Mm-hmm. Like I can't focus on one. There's like 30 some out of you that I got to also engage. <laughs> and we started in the classroom and sure enough, he said what he said he was going to do. He was not very engaged. He was, you know, a little problematic, you know, but we were, you know, we powered through, like started, you know, teaching them about bird, bird ecology, bird ecology in an urban area, like window strikes, yeah. planting service berries, why yeah. caterpillars are important, mm-hmm. pollinators, predators, like all this, like we, we kind of got into population dynamics. Wow. Just like the whole nine, like we really went out and it's like, all right, we taught them how to use binoculars. We went outside, put the binocular like to test. We, we taught them how to use like a compass, do like a habitat survey. 
And it's like, all right, now we're going to go outside to like this little patch of woods and we're going to go into this ravine and, Mm -hmm. you know, you're going to do a habitat survey. Like we're going to just going to let you go. And the kid that got off the bus and was like, I'm not going to do this. He was gun ho. (laughs) He was engaged. He was diving into the ravine. He was running around. He was writing things down. He was like, mister, look at that. Look at this. Look at that. He was like telling people what to do. Like, you need to go collect this data. You need to go do that. Like he was like top notch field ecologist. That's awesome. And when he's on the bus, like when he's on the way, like, you know, time to say goodbye, he's getting on the bus. I'm like, dude, what happened to you not like participating? Like, look at your shoes. They're destroyed. And he was like, nah, don't worry about it. This was totally worth it. I'm going to get a toothbrush and some Clorox. And I'm just going to like have my mom, like help me clean them. That is so sweet. Yeah. And it was like amazing. Cause even the, the teachers, the teacher aides would get off the bus and they'd be like, listen, these kids, they're trouble. Or like these kids, they're the worst of the worst. Mm. Or like these kids, they're on medication. Mm. And I'm just like, okay. All the more reason they need to run around. In the I floor. was like, thank you for telling me this. Mm-hmm. And like all of them would say the same thing. It's like, wow, I'm totally going to do this again. I'm going to get my family out here. I'm going to get my mom, my dad, my brother, my sister. I'm going to get my cousins out here. I was like, we should do this more often. Like school's a prison. Like this is so boring. Mm-hmm. Like we need to get out more often. It's like, when can we do this again? So like back to the general theme of like engaging and making that connection. Like you had this kid that was adamant about not giving two farts about this day. Like he was like, (laughs) at least, at least I'm out of school, I suppose. Mm -hmm. And he turned out to be the most engaged student that I had. Yeah. That's, um, that's such a cool story. I, I'm like, I want to pull apart bits and pieces of it, but from a parent standpoint, so I have two boys and now I'm like, yep. I, when I drop my kids off, I'm like, well, they're, you know, they've had a rough day. Maybe they're, I have to say that like there might be better or they might be worse than they actually are. Like, oh, they're probably hungry. Maybe they're not going to be so great for you. And then they turn out being, turn out excellent. So it's like that, that mental attitude of like, we have to qualify that. I don't think that my kids are going to do a good job when I put them in the hands of someone else. So I have to say prepare for the worst, like the worst outcome. But yet we don't give our kids, our students, the benefit of the doubt that they're going to show up, that they're going to love it and experience something new. And they're going to go into a field ecology course, all hands on deck. Like we just assume the worst, unfortunately. Yeah. I mean, I think we also assume because like they're just kids. What do they know? But like, I don't know. I remember when I was a kid, I was like super inquisitive and I was Mm -hmm. doing stuff and like I was interested. And I think like when we get to adults, we kind of forget that. Mm -hmm. So like another thing, another story um, from my master's, I worked in North City, St. Louis. Um, So like quick background of St. Louis. um, There's a lot of historical racism that has segregated the city um, Mm -hmm. into North City, St. Louis being predominantly black um, Mm -hmm. and very low socioeconomic status and there's high crime rates. And then South St. Louis being um, predominantly white and better off financially. Mm -hmm. Um, 
and I was interested in vacant lots and like brownfields and how they kind of were function as microhabitats for birds. Okay, can you so, really quick say what a brownfield is? Um, a brownfield is like, it's another, just another word for a vacant lot. It's a type of vacant lot. Um, oh, shoot, I'm trying to think of like, yeah, it's just. Oh, With some like, maybe some weeds growing in. Um, yeah, so it's, it's, a, it's a lot that no longer serves the purpose that it was built intentionally for. So sometimes it still has the structure of a building on there. Okay. Um, yeah, so it's just like a vacant lot is just an empty patch of grass. So like brownfields, they once upon a time might've been developed and okay. now there's just artificial remnants laying around. Okay. Um, so I would do one of my point counts behind this little complex. And there was this kid that wait for the bus every morning. Mm-hmm. And like one day he was like, dude, what are you doing? <laughs> like, he was under 10 years old. And I was like, what are you doing? And it's like, oh, I'm counting birds. Like I'm interested like where the birds are going and all this stuff. And I, like, it was like two or three weeks later, I showed up to the, to the same site to, you know, do another round of point counts. And this time the kid was waiting for me. And I was like, Hey, how's it going? How are you? And he's like, it's like, I have to show you something. And he took me around his entire complex and pointed out all the bird nests. Oh, because he was like, I was like, you said you were counting birds, right? It's like, yeah, it's like, and he was like, there's a bird nest right here. There's a bird nest right there, over here, right here. And I was just like, I was like, uh, do you want to help me do some point counts? And I was like, but just like, promise me that you're like not going to be late for school. Cause like, I'm a stranger <laughs> and I'm like taking this kid away to like count some birds. Like, that's like strange or danger red flags all over the place. <laughs> like, promise me you're like gonna make it to school. You're gonna get on your bus. Like mm-hmm. we got like five minutes. Mm-hmm. And like, yeah, he was like, there's a bird, there's a bird, there's a bird. And I just like everything he pointed out, I just like wrote it down. I'm like, all right, all right, all right. I was like, all right, cool, thanks. That's amazing. That's adorable. Yeah. He's a, a mini ecologist, just in the making. Just because I told him that I was out here counting birds, like this random dude showed up to his apartment complex and was counting birds. <laughs> and then he decided for the next three weeks to figure out where every single bird nest was. Oh my gosh. So how can we, as we're like wrapping up, how can we make this passion sustainable? One of the things I am um, concerned about is not only the, the inequity of privilege and socioeconomic status and white Caucasians in conservation, in this sector, in this industry, in this workforce, but the burnout rate, because there's so little funding. So sustainably, I don't know, you probably don't have answers, but we can have a conversation about get more funding so that individuals like those kids that you were talking about, especially from historically marginalized groups, can come in and be leaders in conservation and not feel the socioeconomic pressures that are so often associated with our career? Big question. <laughs> because I have so many thoughts. Yes, I know. And um, Oh, shoot. Where do we start? Well, let's I start guess. with funding. I mean, like grant funding and, uh, and science funding. I feel like as researchers, we're like part-time researchers, part-time grant writers. Oh yeah. And it's so much work. It's brutal. 
Um, but honestly, I, I think we just got to like take the system that we have and shake it like an Etch-A-Sketch and like start over. Interesting. Um, okay. Yeah. Just so I, I interned for the Fish and Wildlife Service and I actually have like behind the scenes access to like how the grant process works, mm-hmm. okay. like how state agencies apply for federal funding. And then that trickles down to state agencies dividing up that money mm-hmm. to research projects. And it goes like all the way down to the field technician and, you know, the master's or PhD that's doing that research. Like I, I'm at the top of that waterfall as it trickles its way down. Okay. Um, and where that money is pulled from is the most obscure places. Like mm-hmm. it comes from like taxes on uh boating vehicles like the the Mm -hmm. gas the fuel that you buy to fuel up your boating vehicle um some of that money goes from comes from that um Mm -hmm. like buying ammunition so Mm -hmm. yeah like buying ammunition Mm -hmm. buying firearms sometimes buying like fishing like tackle like fishing gear like it comes from like these random places that you never think about like that's where that's where my money is going Um, A lot of it comes from uh, hunting licenses. Mm -hmm. So there's kind of a huge reckoning happening where hunting is not as common as it used to be. Um, More people are living in urban areas. Uh, There's like this whole issue with guns and it's just not that popular anymore. So like our hunting populations are getting older. So they're mm-hmm. just retiring or they're passing away. And just like, you know, that, that way of life is kind of slowly disappearing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that's also into not being able to engage different demographics. You know, it's, it's a citizen science speech all over again, but in hunting. Um, mm-hmm. So if most of that funding is coming from hunting licenses and the purchase of tags and permits and all that stuff, right. and like that's not happening, then we're not making enough money to fund the research. That's horrifying. Okay. Yeah. So it's like, it's this, so it's called, I think it's called like the North American model of conservation that was started mm-hmm. almost a hundred years ago. And on paper, it was choice. It was amazing. It worked out. It was great, but because hunting is not as popular and, you know, buying ammunition, well, buying ammunition is pretty popular because we're America and <laughs> we love our guns. Um, but that's not the point. Uh, so most of the, the revenue is depleting. So we got to figure yep. out yep. new places to get this money. New and sources of funding. Yeah. So I did live in Missouri and Missouri did something that was super, super cool. Okay. And they have one eighth of 1% of their sales tax oh. goes into conservation. Oh. Like a fraction of a penny of every purchase that you make goes into conservation. So if you buy a cup of coffee that costs you $2, like 0.001 penny of that cup of coffee will go into conservation. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that sounds like, I mean, as you're explaining it, I'm like, that sounds ridiculous. And um, part of me is like, that sounds ridiculous because it's a point percentage of a penny, but. But if 331 million people that live in the United States buy a cup of coffee. Yeah. That's going to add up so quickly. Wow. Yeah. So Missouri is one of the better funded 
state wildlife state agencies because they figured it out. Wow. So they actually have good amount of money for research and habitat management and all this stuff. Missouri does a lot of great things with prairie management and wetland mm-hmm. conservation. Like they do a phenomenal job. And it's because of where their money is coming from, because it's not always tied to licenses, permits, mm-hmm. buying gasoline for your boat because everyone has a boat in their backyard like it's not coming from these very obscure places like it's straightforward like you buy a cup of coffee boom you're helping conservation you buy a t-shirt boom you're helping conservation that's amazing yeah not i've not heard of that at all yeah so like Mm -hmm. there's there's a reckoning that's going to happen i don't know when it's going to happen but it's 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 happening um a lot of state agencies a lot of you know the department of interior they're, they're freaking out because they're like, we're, we got to make money. Like we got to make money so we can fund conservation. We can fund research. We can do what this country needs. Or sadly, unfortunately, the other option is, well, we're just not going to fund conservation. I mean, that's, it's the first thing to go. Absolutely. When it comes to non-game biology, so non-hunting biology. Yep. And I think no that- money in it. I think that trickles down to the exploitation that we see, the relying on volunteering. It's like, Uh shoot, we don't have enough money to fund the four technicians we need this summer. It's like, you can be a volunteer. Uh Uh (laughs) You get paid an experience. And like, so yeah, it's, it's like a systemic issue. It's a, it's, it goes all the way to the top. And unfortunately Mm -hmm. the technicians, the seasonal employees, they get super shafted and we have to, you know, work with non-government agencies or private, you know, sector to wrangle up that money and like maybe hope to get paid better somewhere else or, you know, do what we got to do or even pay to do the research. I'm sure like if you pay to do research, you're probably paying for the equipment, the funding, like, That's just, I mean, you view it as like, man, those people are like total villains, but like, they're just doing what they got to do to like produce research. Exactly. I mean, yeah, it, it has to have a nuanced conversation. That's why we're doing this podcast because to solve some of these problems, A, we're not going to get anywhere if people don't know about these problems existing and B, if we just keep bashing conservation organizations and saying, pay better, pay better, pay better. It's doesn't really solve the systemic problems. Of, they, they can't pay better because they don't have any money. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> we need more money. We need more funds. How do we get that? That's the question of the ages. Yeah. Part of your- that's, that's the question that like state agencies and like federal agencies are like really starting to grapple with and like figure out. And unfortunately, like me saying like, Hey, why don't we just do what Missouri does? And I'm sure, you know, then politics get involved and Mm -hmm. they said they don't want their taxes to go up. And these people say they want their taxes to go up. Um, So-and-so like private companies are like, well, why should I have to pay for that? Like, I'm not even using it. Like it gets, it's not straightforward at all. Like -hmm. there's going to be so much compromising, like lobbyists and, you know, Mm -hmm. in DC, 
just it would turn into like an absolute carnage of a war (laughs) to just like be like we just want to fund conservation like there has to be there's just it's not straightforward and that's like i said the reckoning is coming like we're gonna come we're gonna hit a wall and we're gonna have to make a decision that's really scary to think about and sad but you're right i mean it's coming Ooh, yeah uh politically um i yeah i have a hard time um I have a hard time feeling like that's going to be an answer because I'm just not in that world. And I try to avoid that world. And I just don't like politics because it's all about the money and the lobbying and all of that. But I think if enough people get together and vote in politicians and make changes to their laws and push for change, we can do that. So your voice matters, your voice counts, et cetera, et cetera. What I think I'm trying to do and I don't think it's a, it's the problem, but it's a solution it's not the solution, but it's a part of the solution, is using capitalism to our advantage. So right now, <laughs> and I know we're about at an hour of recording time, so I want to be respectful of your time and not get too much into this. But right now, capitalism, because of the society we're in, we don't have a value in conservation. Like going out in nature doesn't provide any tangible benefit or product or service to us. Therefore, it's not valued um, in with the general public. However, if we can tap into the bird banding or the experiential contributory projects and ask the people who are able to fund to contribute to those financially, do you think that could be a way, a, one of the paths forward? So I think it's, I think it's a Band-Aid. I yeah. think it will only get us so far. And like, I think about it in the context of like a lot of bird clubs. And so again, I'm a birder, I study birds. So like, I'm very connected to that community. Right. A lot of bird clubs are making big efforts into diversifying their group base because yeah. a lot of bird clubs are predominantly white retired well-off folks because again that's who has the time to go look at birds mm-hmm. um but they realize that you know times are changing birding is one of the easier activities to get into um especially with the pandemic everyone was outside birding because there was nothing better to do but look at birds <laughs> um so they're like how do we lower these barriers right yeah like like, that's the big question that bird uh, bird clubs are asking and a lot of them are just like i have a crap ton of money or like i have the same pair of binoculars that i've been using since like 1974 Mm -hmm. let me just donate some binoculars let me donate a spotting scope let's Mm -hmm. organize a, a course for nature photography like so like they're doing a great job yep yep but that's only going to get us so far yeah. Like we're, again, we're going to, we're going to hit that wall eventually. Yeah. That barrier. So we need to find, you know, a, a more sustainable solution, a more sustainable solution to sustainability. Yep. Yep. I agree. <laughs> That's what I've called it that too, like a sustainable solution. And then I'm like, yeah, it need the, the money situation needs to be sustainable for sustainability. Yeah. Like I know there was like talks about taxing like binoculars or spotting scopes or like that type of equipment. And that would be used to 
mm. you know, be used to fund projects or something. And again, politics got involved. The people were like, well, why do I have to pay more for an expensive pair of binoculars? Like, I don't understand. So there's just like so many nuances and so many hoops and hurdles to jump through and over. And it's just like, I don't know, there, there is an answer somewhere. I don't know what that answer is. Yeah. Cause there's like, there's these two demographics of people where you have people who want to get into the industry and who really truly want to break into science and academia and help the concert, the planet and can't volunteer and can't just get paid nothing. <laughs> But then there is a group that wants to pay and is willing to pay for experiences and is willing to give funds. And I'm I'm hoping somehow we can even that out and get the the experiences to the people who really have had those you know, marginalized histories by balancing it out with people who are willing to contribute and pay to the contributory science. Pipe dream, I don't know. I mean, yeah, Band-Aid. Probably, but um, I can see a vision and I see a future that looks beautiful and perfect. It's just a matter of getting there. And another thing that we're facing is the reckoning of, you know, Western ecology. Like we've modeled conservation and ecology through the lens of the white man, like Aldo Leopold, Theodore Roosevelt, like they did a lot of great things, but we have to also remember that they also believe that conservation was for white men. Mm -hmm. So that's what conservation was built on. And like, that's what our research is built on. And like, fortunately there's tons of people, you know, looking into indigenous practices and indigenous ecology and starting to incorporate that into their research and looking at, you know, lowering these barriers and spicing up ecology. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's going to help a lot in the long run. That's yeah. going to change the way that we do science. And that's going to, that's going to, you know, change the way that we look at the world. I don't want to keep you on too long, but you just keep saying yeah. excellent things. Yeah. So like, I what was I saying, like, I feel like there is exploitation and there are very limited opportunities, but what like in undergrad, depending on where you went. So I went to a very small institution that had 3000 undergrads uh-huh. and there was like three ecologists and all resources and efforts were given to the pre-meds. Yeah. Because yeah. those are the people that are going to graduate, go to med school, become rich doctors and one day give back to the university. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, like going to state schools for my master's and my PhD, there's so many connections that like are there for us to take. And so many like there, like when I was in Missouri, um, we had connections with the Missouri Department of Conservation. We yep. had like so many connections with organizations where it didn't hurt to be like, hey, what do you do? Can I just help you? Can I just yeah. join you? Yeah. It's like, can I like, what do you do? Like, how did you get here? Like, what opportunities are there? Um, there's this program that's called like the Doris Duke, oh, collaborative initiative, something or other, but mm-hmm. they're at five universities and they fund undergrads for two years to do like a mini research and kind of like close that gap and like lower mm-hmm. those barriers mm-hmm. um, for, you know, for 
people that come from marginalized backgrounds. Um, and I'm very fortunate that I'm able to be a mentor to these young scientists, but at the same time, I'm like, shoot, where was this when I was growing up? I just have <laughs> known about this. This is amazing. Yeah. Like I had one student, she went to freaking Idaho for an internship and she was sending me all these pictures of like the beautiful Idaho landscape. She's like, my field sites were so remote. I had to go like on horseback this week. I'm like, oh, <laughs> who are you? How are you doing this? Why wasn't this me? Like I, I felt kind of jealous. I yeah. was like, yeah. I was like I was like, good for you. You know what? I can't be jealous, but like, good for you. Like, this is what you need. You need that, that positive light. Cause mm-hmm. I feel like some of us have become so jaded in this field. We're just like, the world is out to get us. No yeah. one cares about conservation. Like yeah. everyone hates us, <laughs> but like, yeah, there's, there's opportunities. I know like with the fish and wildlife service, there's a lot of programs and internships kicking up mm-hmm. to to get a more diverse group into mm-hmm. federal positions. Yep. And some of these federal internships, these federal positions roll over into permanent positions or mm-hmm. they give you non-competitive status. Um, and for those that don't know what non-competitive status, it literally gives you a leg up in the application pool. Sure. Um, just because they kind of know you a little bit already. So like, okay, they worked with us once upon a time. So we know them mm-hmm. and we can rely on them and they, you know, we have a little bit of background. Um, so yeah, that totally gives you a leg up. Um, there's so many like grants that people don't think about and so many grants like being created. Mm-hmm. Um, that's one thing that I really, really kicked myself in the butt for um, when I was younger, especially in undergrad, where it's like, there's people out there that are, giving money away Mm, um we just like are just like not applying for it yeah and it's hard to find you have to do the work yeah find those grants it's hard to yeah it's it's brutal that but i think my biggest advice for like young or early career conservationist Mm -hmm. is to ask as many questions as possible yeah like i'm more than happy to sit down with someone for like 30 minutes or an hour and just be like, this is what I did wrong. This is what I wish I did. Here's my advice. Yeah. Just like ask people. Um, One thing that an old roommate of mine would do, he would cold call. Oh, wow. People. Wow. Yeah. He would just be like, Hey, you work for so-and-so. How long have you had this position? What is your position? How much money do you make? Like he was super bold. He was like, how much money do you make? How did you get here? Like, what were the steps that you got here? Because people believe that like, you got to get an undergrad degree in conservation. You got to get a master's in conservation. You got to get a PhD in conservation to do conservation. Like there's, there's no one right way to do this. I knew someone that worked for like Rolling Stone and then decided to become a bad ecologist. Mm-hmm. There was someone that was in there like, 50s, 60s, getting their PhD. It's just like, there's no right way to do all this. Just ask, just ask, literally just ask. I guess that's such, that's great advice. I I guess I'm on the negative side of things where I'm just like, are you concerned that there's not going to be enough positions in the future to fill all these needs for people who want to be in conservation and want to work 
in this industry because they see, oh, I get to play with animals. Is that a concern of yours? Like, I, I don't know. I think it's a concern of mine. Like you have to get, you have to let people know what they're getting into when they apply for these types of positions, because it is really hard and really competitive. So you have to know why you want it. Like I think play with animals. It depends probably the day that you ask me this question. <laughs> Some days I'm not very hopeful. I'm just like doom and gloom. I'm just like, man, like, how am I going to compete with like so many other PhDs out there? Like what's going to make me stand out from everyone else? Yeah. Like what's going to, like, you know, what's going to give me the edge? Like, you know, sometimes I, I view us as like, we are a product and like, we have to sell ourselves. Yeah. You're and, a like, brand. Yeah. And like talking to other academics from other fields are just like, what the hell do you mean you're a product? Like, what do you mean you're selling yourself? Like, that sounds so wrong. Like sometimes like we have to be better than the person next to us so we can get hired. Yeah. Um, but I think there's so much to do in conservation mm. that the more specific you get in this world, the smaller the circle is. And the more you realize that there's a lot to do. So there's plenty to go around. Yeah. Yeah. Like urban ecology. I know a good amount of urban ecologists because the circle we run in is smaller. And then there's like urban ecologists that do bird stuff. And then there's mm -hmm. urban ecologists that do mammal things. Like mm -hmm. it's just the more specific you get with your mm -hmm. interest, the more opportunities they are, the more need for research there is, I should say. Mm. So like, as an early career conservationist, start poking around and start asking these people that you admire or that you like look up to. Social media is a cursing and a blessing. Mm. You mm. have access to so many people at you know your thumbs. Mm -hmm. Just be like, just damn, be like, hey, what is your research? What is it that you do? How did you get there? Why are you interested in that? What like what are you looking into? What are your worries? What are your what are you looking forward to? Yeah, and. I want to, I do want to talk to some people on this podcast who have left the industry because I'm, I'm curious, like who have decided, Hey, it's not worth the competitive nature or getting paid very little or something like that. If that's, that's their personal choice. And I'd rather support conservation by working, you know, a desk job or something like that. And then supporting conservation with my hobby as my hobby or through my, uh, what am I trying to say? So yeah, I, this is why interviews don't go longer than an hour. Like on your like downtime, like you volunteer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I don't. Discretionary income. I'm not sure. I just, I think I'm, I'm privileged in the fact that I've always been funded. I've mm -hmm. always had a, a, I mean, granted, it's not a lot of money. Like I'm not out here just like Scrooge McDucking it, like swimming right. in, a, in, a, in a pool of gold coins. Like I make very, very little, but it is enough to get me by. And I just, maybe I'm like one of those people that have, are just like hoping that once I graduate, yeah. it'll skyrocket, like things will get better. So I think I'm, maybe I'm still in that stage where I'm just like, we'll see in three years when I graduate where we're off. Yeah. Cause I know people that graduate with their PhDs and they're just like looking for postdocs, looking for tenure positions, looking for a job and they struggle. Or there's like postdocs that make a career out of being postdocs cause mm -hmm. they never find that next step. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Like so much can I, change in three years too. Yeah. 
world. I, I, I guess come back to me in, in, in a year and a half and we'll reevaluate and then we'll reevaluate again in, in another year and a half. Yep. Yep. We'll have you back on in a, in a year and a half and see where you're at. <laughs> it's awesome. Overall, are you hopeful or are oh, you? For sure. I, okay. I don't think I'd be in this field if I wasn't hopeful. Yeah. I think I would have quit like a long time ago and started doing something else. Just gone off to Wall Street and made all the money. If, yeah. <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah, it's just, I'm very, I'm very hopeful. Yeah. Um, these younger generations are a force to be reckoned with. They're, yeah. you know, I, I, like I go, social media like talks about the Gen Zers and I'm just like, I, I vote for Gen Z. Like I'm putting my faith in them because yeah. they're a bold generation. Mm. And I like wholeheartedly believe in them. Yeah, that's awesome. That is hopeful. What a great, hopeful, <laughs> awesome note to end on. Um, I'm glad you also brought up the white academia and ivory tower kind of, you know, parachute science. We could talk about that. Oh, there's <laughs> so much to talk about that we didn't get to. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I know you are um, on your lunch break. So I appreciate you taking your time your lunch break to talk to me and um, share your stories and your experiences. It's so meaningful. It's so valid. It's so needed. It's needed in this world that we're in. And I really appreciate what you're doing and the hope you spur on to future conservationists and future generations. Thank yeah. you. So much. Thank you. And thank you for having me. It's been, it's been a good talk. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. It's so nice to meet you and talk with you and we will um, we will talk again soon. Oh, wait, where can people find you on social media? Oh, I am on Twitter and I'm on Instagram at urban bird eco, but oh, I all one word, er, like or, all one word. Yeah. Uh, but I'm more into the science communication on Instagram, uh, Twitter. I just used to complain about <laughs> how hard life is. <laughs> That's all Twitter's for really. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. Is it the same uh, name on Twitter, Urban yep. Bird Eco? Okay. Yep. Cool. And we'll link that in the show notes. Thank you again for your time. Thank you so much for your perspectives and thoughts. I really appreciate it. Of course. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. And remember, ethical conservation needs and deserves funds so that passionate people like you can get paid what they're worth. There's enough money to go around. Let's go get it and use it for the good of our planet.